Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We recently put on a conference at High Point Church called Sexuality Everywhere. We were looking at the question, how can we glorify Jesus as sexual beings? In this final session of the Sexuality Conference, Pastor Nick Gibson talks about where do we go from here? How can we as a church be a city on a hill when it comes to our sexuality? Thanks for listening. Um, we'd hope to have a different speaker for this hour. You may have noticed that everybody has a certain level of skin darkness who has been speaking in the main sessions. Chris Brooks was supposed to be our third speaker speaking about um, the family and sexuality within the urban context, but something happened with what was going on in his life and he just couldn't do it. So um, that's why I'm speaking to you. So, uh, which is fun because I really wanted to. So, uh, <laughs> First Thessalonians, I don't have a clicker if anybody can help me with that. Is this it here? Okay. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 8 says this, Finally, brothers, you could add in sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In fact, as you are living, and now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified or made holy is what that means. That you should avoid sexual morality that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. I realize that in 2019 in our culture, to talk about struggling and growing in our understanding and experience of our gender and our sexuality, I am literally the worst possible person. I, I, like, I get that there is like a hierarchy of intersexual, like how much you've been traumatized and oppressed, and I am like the I'm like the lowest priority person, and so therefore like the worst possible person to speak about this. And like, okay, I get that. And then also, like, conversely, in the church, like, I'm—like, if we think shallowly enough, I'm, like, the gold standard. Like, I can check all the major boxes as long as you don't ask too many questions, right? So, like, I was a virgin when I got married. I've been married to one woman for 20 years. We've been fruitful and multiplied four times. I've been in ministry for 20 years. I've never had any indiscretion with a female congregant or coworker. Like, I, like I'm that guy. Like, you're not going to hear about, like, that I've been having some affair on the side. That's just not going to happen, man. I've checked the boxes. Both of those views, that you can look at someone and say, like, they're the, they're the person you shouldn't have because they're not at the right level of oppression to talk about their suffering. Or the other side, that if the person can check the gold standard boxes, they're the right person for you to listen to, are both catastrophically simplistic. Right? To say that— um, to say, like, you can only if you're—so, like, on, on our world right now, the top most suffering person, right, is the person whose gender dysphoric or is transgender, right? But to say that, like, only those people can talk about their suffering and difficulty and working through what it means to be their gender and their sex is kind of like saying that only people with esophageal cancer can talk about the difficulty they've had with their health problems, right? Like, 
maybe that is a really deadly form of cancer, and maybe it's like you shut up, should shut up when they're talking because maybe compared to them you're having a difficult time. But that doesn't mean that you haven't suffered. It doesn't mean that you don't need to grapple with what's going on in your life. Um, and one of the things I tell teenagers all the time is like, listen, I know you feel like your life is difficult, but that's true for every other adolescent. Like, they're all fighting a great battle. Like, we are all struggling with these things. And in a culture that is so sideways and so confused and so up is down and down is up when it comes to sexuality and gender and what it means to be beings that have a sexuality, we are all struggling even more than what is necessary in a world that is under the curse. Right? When it comes to sexuality, we're all fighting a great battle. Right? Now, one of the things that, um, think about this way for a second. Forget for a minute that we've had a X number of year political, social, media-based discussion about what it means to be gender dysphoric or transgender. Let's just pretend for a minute that we're all normal human beings having a conversation that includes 100% of us, okay? And let's say for a minute that you are a female person, okay? A girl or a young woman or a woman of any age, right? If you feel like you are the wrong kind of woman, if you feel like you are defective in your gender and in your sexuality, what's wrong with you? Right? Okay, it's not that you think that you should be a man. The thing that virtually every woman is going to share is that they don't know if they are sufficiently beautiful and therefore desirable and committable within the context of sexuality that's in the culture around them. That's what it is. I can't tell you how many like 15 to 22 year old girls I've talked to, they're like, I can't tell you how many hours I've cried in front of the mirror. That like I look and I see somebody who's ugly and I know that if I'm ugly, I'm nothing. I mean, and these are pretty girls. <laughs> like, when you're 41, you're like, everybody's beautiful when they're young. Their skin's shiny. Like, everything's north of where it's going to be. Like, it's great. You know? But to them, like, a 2% gradient in perceived attractiveness, and it's, like, depressing and destructive, and they don't know how they can live, right? And it's because—here's why they feel that way. Because that's how everybody treats them. Women know it. And they know it from extremely young ages. And that's what it means to be a defective woman for every single, even, even the transitioning transgender person knows that. It's something we all share, right? Now think about it for men. What is it for men? What is it for little boys? What are, what are, what are young men struggling with, right? All of them. Well, for men, it's status. Am I going to be high enough status to get mainly the person I want to love me to love me or to be with me to be with me? Or for people to open the doors I want them to door? Now, for ultimately for men, it's usually going to be like money and you do like midlife crisis stuff. But when you're younger, it's really about stature and strength, right? The cheerleader doesn't go to prom, right, with a guy who's from the family with the most money. She goes with the captain of the football team, right? She go like the person with the highest physical stature. So the most effective thing you could be as a young man is small and weak. Now, I know a considerable amount about this because puberty did not dawn upon me until I was about 16 and a half years old. And until then, I was like one of the scrawny— I was literally—I was the backup point guard on the basketball team, okay? That's a terrible position to be in, right? You just—you never get to play. Everybody beats up on you, right? And I felt that every single day. 
I still remember, I have a picture in my mind, I can play the movie, of sitting on the baseball team at the bench while we were batting, right? I was the first baseman, and one of the other guys in class walked by me with a, pulled the top off a shark marker and started drawing hair on my legs as he walked by me because I didn't have any and I was 16. Okay? And I remember, like, that doesn't feel good. All right? It feels like you're not a man is what it feels like, and you're not gonna be one. And it's very hard in any stage of early developmental life to know that, like, almost all this stuff is gonna work itself out. But you can tell kids that. They don't really believe you. Right? And um, like what happens to a lot of people in that, it, I, I was kind of enraged by it. I was really hurt by it. I didn't know if I'd ever, like any girl would ever pay attention to me. But the thing is, it was worse than that. It wasn't just the girls wouldn't pay attention to me. It was that guys treated me like I was less than human, and adults treated me like I was less important, less worth paying attention to than other young men. Right? There wasn't a strong voice from the adults that proved to me that all of this stupidity was just kids being stupid. Because the adults didn't really live by what the Bible says, that it's godliness that elevates in the Christian community, not looks or stature or money, right? And so um, about when, like, puberty dawned on me and I grew, like, six inches in less than a year and, like, filled out about 70 pounds in my upper body and was one of the captains of the soccer team. And, like, I went into full-out dating rage. Like, I, I spent so much time, like, wondering if anybody would ever pay attention to me um, that my struggling with my gender affected very directly my struggle with my sexuality because— the, one of the biggest questions I had as a young man was, was a woman going to find me sufficiently desirable? In a little less than two years, I dated more than 50 different women. Right? And there was a time when I was proud of that. And I was like, I dated a bunch of women. Like, it's so horrific. Like, I, I actually remember being in college, and I was almost at the end of my freshman year, and this had tapered off. But I remember praying and feeling like the Lord spoke to me. It was a really deep and moving message. It sounded a little like this, and I'm sure some of my conscience and my flesh was bound up in it, but it, it sounded a little like this. Nick, I think I might have to kill you. <laughs> These are all my daughters. Like, what, what, what makes you think you can treat people like this? Like, I might have to kill you. And I was like, I might have to change. <laughs> you know? And so, and here's the, here's the thing, like, I lived off of, the conf off of the confidence that I vampirically sucked out of those people's lives for years. And I, like, I, I can't even, I, I can't even really fathom what it does to people. Because you see, other than that, I was a pretty nice guy. I didn't, I wasn't like a jerk all around, which was worse. That's worse. To convince a young woman who's learning within the romantic space of connection who to trust, why to trust them, when to respond to ovations of desire and interest? At what point do you let yourself trust somebody and open up yourself to them and be vulnerable with them? And at what level do you let them touch you? And like, what does that mean? And then to have that given to you, and then for no apparent reason, for the person to just take it away and move on to one of your friends for no apparent reason. I still don't have any idea how wicked that is. I still don't think I've ever really dealt with the weight of hell that I perpetuated on my sisters and the brothers that then dated and married them, right? 
But like, that, it is on those levels, in those places, where every single human being living in a gender, in a sex, living out their experiences, like you, like there's a sense in which talking about the transgender stuff is, is really important. And it's also really taking our eye off the ball for 95% of us, too. And we have to be careful that we're doing both. That we're figuring out how to talk and live and be sensitive and love a certain group of people who are having a minority experience. And yet, also not taking our eye off the ball for everybody else. And the ways in which we can fall into idolatry and pain and destruction— Um, coming through that, when I was 19, I was working at a Christian camp in the Adirondacks, and I was sexually assaulted by a male friend of mine who was also a counselor at the camp. He was two years older than me, a confidant. I would have considered him a mentor. We were—it was like the weekend when the kids weren't there. We were sleeping in two beds right next to each other. I woke up kind of middle of the night with him very erotically touching me, and um, that was a really difficult thing, right? And— uh, you know, you, afterwards, you kind of wonder how that'll affect you. It's, it's not obvious. And I, I thought at first that it might make me kind of homophobic, right? Um, and it really didn't. That was, like, I really love this guy. I, and, like, the risk in, like, how tortured must he have been to, like, risk to touch me, right? Like, what was it like to be him that he— he would do that, right? And he apologized, and I knew he was really sorry for doing it, and, like, it really wasn't that. Actually, I felt like over the course of my life, it's allowed me to be more empathetic towards gay men in my life. Twenty years later, I figured out what it had really done to me. And it was that it, um, it took me minutes to figure out what was happening to me, know it was happening to me, and stop it from happening to me. Why didn't it take one second Right? I've been reading a bunch of sexual assault literature, and like, it's really common, especially for women, to say, like, I didn't really know what was happening, and then I like realized it was happening, and then I just kind of froze. Like, a lot of people say that, right? Um, I don't know how women respond to it, but as a man who is defined in some sense by strength, like, to know that I was that weak is an incredibly haunting idea. And in some ways, dealing with the sexual assault itself doesn't help. Because the sexual assault didn't make me weak. It just revealed how weak I was. Because I was a grown man at that point. I was 19 years old. Right? And to fear without naming it, if in the future, if whatever will happen to me in the future, will I be ready? Will it be different? Will I be strong enough? Will I recognize what it is? Will I know? Will other people walk all over me? Am I that strong? Like, that question can haunt the human heart and can in some ways— disastrously haunt the masculine heart in ways that we don't even necessarily want to know about. Right? And so, we need to focus on the cultural com conversation and the relationships that we have with sexual minorities. But as the church, we need to be as wide as possible ministering to all people in every place and in every way in which we are all trying to figure out how to step into through the power of the Spirit and the truth of the gospel to what it look like, looks like to have the image of God remade by the power of the Spirit and godliness and holiness 
to quote Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2. So what are we going to do? What do we do? Okay, so this is my like, where do we go from here, guys? And I want to say three things, okay? Because I can't talk for that long. The first is, we need to actually believe that sexuality is one of the most foundational, potent, and consequential things about us. It doesn't do us any good to pretend that sexuality isn't a big part of our lives. Okay? Secondly, we need to avoid being captured by any political or worldly religions that seek to define how we relate to and deal with sexuality. That may be the more uncomfortable point. And third, we need to face our sexual worldliness by mastering a deeper theology of humanity and sexuality. I know that sounds riveting. I promise it'll be funner than it looks. Okay, so <clears throat> first, we need to believe that sexuality is one of the most foundational things about us. Now, sometimes that's hard because the minute you agree that it's one of the more foundational things about us, you might have to talk about it. But in Genesis 1, it is like the second thing we're told about our existence. And then in Genesis 2, it's increasingly amplified, right? But it's, it's more than that. So like it's foundational, and of course it's potent. But think about this. It's not just Genesis 1 and not just Genesis 1 and 2. Like somebody asked a question last night. You know, you quoted the beginning of Genesis, but you didn't really tell us much more. Well, it's almost on every page, right? In Genesis 1, we're made male and female in God's image. In Genesis 2, you have the whole creation of the woman from man and the poetry and that we're all in love. In Genesis 3, you have the reverse, reversal of the ordination of authority within marriage in the creation order so that the husband submits to the woman, right? And then the curse is engendered. The curse on the woman is different than the curse on the man. Right? So in Genesis 3, you have two more emphases on gender, right? In Genesis 4, you have the fruit of their fertility killing each other out of resentment. By the time you get to Genesis 5, you've got Lamech with his two wives, right? And on and on it goes. Like, let me just read you a little list of what happens sexually in Genesis, right? There's a lot of marriage and family. There's rape, incest, entrapping prostitution, polygamy, marital strife about fertility and infertility, jealousy within polygamous marriage, civilization, sexual deviance in Sodom and Gomorrah, fraudulent marriage, sexual assault, false reporting of sexual crimes, shared concubinage, illegitimacy, parental abandonment of children without paying child support, and leaving of the mother destitute, and incest. Like, it's all in Genesis. Every one of them. Right? Sexuality goes wrong first and most in many ways. Peter Kreef says, now sexuality is not the greatest sin, but it might be the most popular. <laughs> right? Quoting Thomas Aquinas. Um, if that's true, Okay, if that's true, there's a couple things we need to recognize. The first is, because, um, because the curse in, is wrapped up in relationship to our sexuality, in relationship to everything else about us, the image of God and the creation mandate and what we're called to do as people and families and all of that, the best way to roll back the curse off of our sexuality is to invite godliness into all of our lives by believing the gospel. Okay? Like, on one level, you would want to free your sexuality by focusing on your sexuality. And that's good in some ways, but in other ways, it's—you you need to start with just the whole package. The thing is, is that your sexuality isn't just what you do with your genitals or, like, who you're attracted to. It, it's wrapped up in how you do everything. Everything you're doing, you're doing like a man or like a woman. You're doing—carrying your gender along. When you look at another person, the second thing you recognize after whether or not they're a human is what gender you think they are. And then you relate to them 
partly based on that. Even people who like, like tell themselves they don't think that. And so one of the things you have to start with is if you want to try to heal or really deeply inhabit well your sexuality, you need to start with, with your humanity and how the gospel connects with everything in your humanity. How you relate to the discipline of cheerfulness in relationship to the truth of the gospel is going to affect your embodiment of your sexuality. It's all related. You can't unravel it. And part of the beginning to begin to heal your sexuality is to try to just bring the gospel in everywhere. Because remember, it is, it is Satan who says, do this and you'll get that. And he gets us playing on one level. One of the reasons why we don't understand Jesus is because we think cause and effect. We think like children, right? In relationship, at least to love, when you become a man or a woman, you're supposed to put shallow, childish ways behind you. Jesus is always working 50 levels. He's always working 50 levels. You don't know this, but like when you're trying to keep your hands off of the girl you're dating so that you don't have sex before you're married, you're mainly focused on not having sex before you're married. Jesus is working on when you're 35 years old and you have two kids and the woman feels like her boobs are saggy. She's not sleeping in the middle of the night. She has zero sex drive and the guy's traveling more than he ever has. She knows that he's not going to have sex with some woman on the road because when they were madly in love when they were dating, he had the character to keep his hands off of her. And so she doesn't have to be jealous at home wondering what her husband's doing. Because what girl could step to her when she was in her prime and the full and complete object of his passions? But you weren't working that when you were dating her. You were supposed to be just trying to obey Jesus. Right? And there's lots of levels of that. And Jesus is always working lots of levels. And if you, and you, you may not know the levels. And here's the glory of it. You don't even have to know the levels, right? The Bible says, the wisdom of God, the word of the Lord, makes the simple wise. That is n nice talk for saying, look, you can be really stupid. But if you do what God says, you will get the life of a really wise person. Right? Now, the, the second caveat to that is, we also are going to need some sexuality-based discipleship. Where when we disciple people, and when we disciple ourselves, and when we disciple others, we are going to have to recognize that some of it needs to be specifically applied to sexuality and things that are sexual, and focus on our gender and our sexual practice. And we have to be okay with that. We need to create opportunities for it, and we need to be able to talk about it, right? We say at High Point Church, you don't need a Christian friend. Because you can have a friend who's a Christian who, with whom you never talk about Jesus. You need a gospel friendship or a spiritual friendship. A friendship in which you can talk about sports and you can talk about the pool and you can talk about whatever. And Jesus can come up at any time in any way about anything. And he's just—he's in and out of every conversation. He's sort of in every conversation. And so you can talk about anything. And only in that kind of context can you also talk about sex in Jesus. Do you understand? And so— our relationships are going to have to be such in our mentoring relationships, in our friendship relationships, in our ministry relationships, such that you can ask things. I wish I could say more about that, but we need to keep rolling. The next thing is, is that we need to avoid being captured by any political or worldly religions that define our sexuality. You might wonder, what does that exactly mean? And um, whenever people turn away from God, they don't actually become irreligious. Right? John Calvin said that the heart of human beings is an idol factory. We will always create something to put our hope in, always something to put our worship in. 
we will always be devoted to something because human beings, by definition, are dependent creatures. We don't self-exist. We're not God. And so we always look to something. And when we turn our eyes away from the one true God, we will produce an idol. And be, partly because of the way media functions and that we have the internet and like, like people can display things ubiquitously, it produces a culture in which we can have national media-based and political-based religions. And we have created those. And if you let them capture you, they will constrain your thinking about your sexuality and your discipleship so that you can't even think any of the thoughts you need to to be free and to grow and to become substantive and to—and so on, right? The Bible says everywhere that we are drawn to things not in line with the gospel. We are idol makers, right? But Matthew 6, Jesus explicitly says, listen, you can't have two masters. It does not work. If you try to have two masters, you will hate one of them. And he says that euphemistically. You're supposed to know that the master you will hate will be God. Whenever you bring in an idol, you don't go, well, I brought in this idol, and I'm going to hate one of these, so I hate the idol. That's not how it works. You bring in the idol, and you're like, oh, and you naturally hate God, because God's the one who's like, hey, I don't like the other woman. You need to get rid of that. And you're like, what's the big deal, right? You end up hating the—you end up hating the girl you're dating that's the exclusive one, because you want to be a philanderer, right? And so God is the one who's like, you can't have other women, right? And so— but you can just go through this. It's everywhere in the Bible. Colossians 2, 6, 8. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Colossians 2, 20, a few verses later. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at that one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The flesh has thoughts, not just feelings. Right? Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. 1 Corinthians 3, 4, the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And it is written, he catches the wise on their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. And Romans 12, 1 and 2, the, probably the most famous one. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now you might say, Nick, I've read a bunch of those verses before. I know. The reason I put them together into this little soliloquy is so that you'd see how many times God keeps bringing this up. He keeps bringing it up because we tend to just fall into the wisdom of the world again and again and again. Oh, sorry, there's even more. Let's keep moving. <laughs> Two of the public sexual religions that exist right now that will mentally capture you if you're not profoundly careful— are what I will just call secular progressivism and irreligious conservatism. Okay, these are both religions that have all the functions of religions in them, and they seek to give you a totalizing view of the world so that you know that you're a good person, you know what you're supposed to do, you know who you're supposed to hate, you know what your religious rituals are, you know what your religious responsibilities are, you know the answers to all the questions, and you don't have to live with any cognitive dissonance. Right? And so, for secular progressivism, 
the, the main problem is that men are rapists, sex-crazed monsters. Women are the victims of patriarchy. Therefore, the right religious thing to say is the Me Too thing. The future is feminine. Society's not nurturing enough is the problem. The, the unrighteous people are the men, the non-feminists, the structural injustices. Right? And what we need to, for salvation is women liberating interventions. And irreligious conservatism basically believes the opposite. Right? We've had a thousand years of feminism. Women are actually way more entitled than they are. Like, oppressed. Men are the victims of feminist rigging. So we quit. Men are quitting relationships and marriages in record numbers in America. Screw you. I'm not going to marry you so that you can take half my stuff. Right? I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from young men. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying— they're, they're angry too, it turns out. And I think because they're believing in one of these fake religions, right? And so like the problem are like women and people who pretend like women have all the problems. And the problem isn't that we need to give more stuff away. It's like we need more productivity, more manliness, right? And then you have all your like religious duties. So like what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to support the leaders that say this for both groups, right? You're supposed to virtue signal on social media to have the right religious devotion and your holiness rituals are that you're supposed to separate from and misrepresent the people that aren't like us because they deserve it. And the result is you will receive justification by your faith alone and union with the group of people that you really should belong to if you're a good person. Now listen. There are, there are truths in both of those claims, groups of claims, and I'm not saying that they're morally um, equatable. Right? One of them might be more true than the other. I'm not really sure. I've read a lot in both of those areas, and like there's a lot of stuff to think about in both of those groups. Right? Like, you, you don't have to believe that a third of all women have been sexually assaulted to know that a lot of women have been sexually assaulted. Like, like the numbers are a little bit not as important, other than like how important we should make it in terms of like where it goes on the priority list. But like, if you ask a woman who's been mistreated, have you been mistreated? And they're like, yeah. And you like look at a bunch of other women and be like, what about you guys? A bunch of them are going to say, yeah, me too. Right? But listen, there are thousands of men who, in no-fault divorce, their wife decided they just didn't want a man around anymore. Certainly not a man who acts like that. And they just leave and like, you're still going to pay me alimony and child support and all this stuff, and I'm going to live the life I want. And those men are pissed, and those men are misused. Right? And like, there's all kinds—listen. In a fallen world— in which we don't live redemptively through the gospel into our gender and into our sexuality, we're going to get a lot of terrible masculinity and we're going to get a lot of terrible femininity. Like, women aren't better than men. And men aren't great. <laughs> like, we, we tend to, like, slide to some of the worst things about us. Self, listen, listen, men and women have certain ways in which they express righteousness a little bit differently. And they have ways in which they express ungodliness a little bit differently. Right? But if you think, like, giving men or women the future is the answer, you haven't read Genesis 1 and 2. The purpose and future of humanity is complementary. The woman is the gift to the man, and the man is the gift to the woman. First Corinthians, in— in one, man is not free of the woman. In, right, the, man, the woman came from the man, but all babies come from women. Right? They're all—they're dependent on each other. The future, the past, eternity is complementary. Women are not the enemy, and men are not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. Ungodliness is the enemy. Our idolatries are the enemy. And— and we need to turn ourselves over to Jesus. 
And these religions will tell you you are not the problem. Listen, you are sleeping with the enemy. It's you. And, and we are the problem. And we need to repent and believe the gospel. And we need to let that fill every area of our life. And we need to let that reinform and reshape our sexuality. And we need to live that in front of each other in an in a open yet not sexualizing way, which is very difficult. There's a reason for all of our pruderies. Because it's very easy to be open about your sexuality in ways that sexualize relationship in really bad ways. I'm not saying it's easy. And there's not a lot of good models. But like I love to quote at High Point Church, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. By the power of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness, through these He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through these you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Right? Now, the problem is, is that those communitarian false religions are fed by the individualist false religion <laughs> that Adam called the other night and that lots of people call expressive individualism, right? That basically, like, I can define myself from myself, right? I can be who I want to be. You've heard these, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself, live your truth, live your love. And additionally, love who you love. One of the things that Adam said to the youth was, one of the most foundational points of Christian faith is nobody gets to tell God who they are. Whatever the differences in our experiences, and some of our experiences are very different, that truth remains. Whatever happens in creation, in our experiences, the basic fundamental distinction in all of creation of God and everything God creates never reverses. Nobody gets to tell God who they are. God always tells us who we are. And there's nobody around that. And to know who he is and to know who we are. And so, we as God's people have to actively, like it says in 2 Corinthians, take every thought captive to Christ. We need to look skeptically, especially at what seems like pop popularly virtuous. Like when, when the popular culture says, this is virtuous— like, that should trigger your skepticism. Right? Third, we need to learn about Christianity. <laughs> like, we need to learn about, like, who Jesus is, what human beings are, what salvation is, what sin is like, how it—like, for example, I didn't know till I was in seminary about what's called the noetic effects of the fall. Okay? The noetic effects of the fall. Okay, that's just a fancy way of saying when you— are affected by sin, it affects how you think about everything. And it's—so, like, you can't get behind your sins because your sinful thinking is, like, in your mind, clouding your judgment and hiding your idolatry to save it. And so there's a certain amount of self-skepticism and, like, you—and so once you realize that, you're like, oh, man, I really need the Word of Jesus and the Word of God and the power of the Spirit— and the gathered church, and the preaching of the gospel, because I need other reliable voices coming into me. Because if I listen to the voices inside of me, the noetic effects of the fall, sin clouding my judgment, is always going to take over my thinking, and I'm going to convince myself to do what I ought not to do. That's—I 
I mean, like, that's a pretty simple biblical notion. It's everywhere in the Bible. The first three chapters of Romans are almost all about that. Like, our suppression of the truth. We don't want to know the truth. It's in our minds, right? And we walk around like, like we can trust ourselves. Like, the, it's the most—it's the most unchristian notion you could possibly imagine. That human beings can trust themselves and do what comes naturally. Right? If you believe that, you don't worship Jesus. You worship romanticism. You worship Freud and Foucault and Rousseau and a lot of O's because they're all from France. You know, like— <laughs> That's not totally true. Freud's not from France. Right? But like, that's a view. It's called romanticism. It's not Christian. Okay? All right, let's keep moving. Three. We need to face our sexual worldliness by mastering a deeper theology of humanity and sexuality. Like, telling people <laughs> in our lives, don't have sex. That's just not enough. The binary approach of like, you were a virgin when you got married, you weren't. You, you like did have adultery, you didn't. Like, that's not good enough. Okay, listen. Um, I love, I love messing with young men and women by saying this. Listen, when you get married, your spouse— is going to fall in love with two to seven people during your marriage who aren't you. Okay? What I mean by that is they're going to have all those same feelings. The, the desire to connect, the feeling of deep respect, the relatedness, wanting the relate, you'd to go further, to feel closer to that person. That, that, like, storm of emotions we call love. Like, they're going to have that for other people. Like, we spend more time with our coworkers than our spouses. What do you think is going to happen in the natural bonding of human beings? Like, one psychologist said, we've only been doing the co-ed workplace for about 60 years. We still have no idea if it's going to work. There's some truth to that. I think it's one of the reasons why men and women often sort into professions that are dominated by one sex or another. My wife used to work with all men. She's like, man, I like how men want to get things done, but I also hate working with men. One of the difficulties in our present moment is because we talk so much about sexual minorities, which on one level is good, there is another conversation surrounding sexual minorities that wants to wipe out the concept of normativity, okay? Which you can see why, right? So like if you have people who are um, in some ways not the norm or who are exceptions, but if you have what you consider normal and whoever's not normal is abnormal, right? Having a concept of normal makes everybody who's not in an abnormal and less in, on the outside, right? But that's not what normativity means. And it's a concept confusion that people fall into a lot. Normativity is the opposite, not of weirdness, but of just non-normativity. So, for example, in the Bible, marriage is normative and singleness is non-normative. In 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is referred to as in certain situations at least— as better than marriage in certain ways. It's not less. It's not weird. It's not bad. It's good. It's a great good. But the Bible assumes the vast majority of people are going to get married, and that they should get married, and that that's good. There are lots of things. For example, like politics, going into politics had better be non-normative. Okay, like we cannot deal with more than like 1% of the human population getting involved in politics, right? Like, it is a good thing that watching cable news in America is non-normative. I mean, there's enough carnage going on when 3% of America watches it, okay? Agreed? Right? This is also true in lots of things in humanity. 
See, this is one of the problems that we're having. If you, we can't teach little boys and little girls what it means to be little boys and little girls because we're afraid that non-normative people are going to kill themselves, which is a real fear. We are not serving like 95% of the human population. Right? The idea that gender and sex and what you're supposed to do with them are so fundamentally innate— that everybody, if we teach nothing and nothing's normative, all those people will just be what they biologically are and they'll just lick it up off the ground. Is not true. You have to learn how to be a man. You have to learn how to be a woman. You have to figure out how to do that with your temperament, in the space that you're in, how it's different than some men, but like other men, and different from some women, and like other women. And, and how do you work it out based on your skills and abilities, and where you find yourself, and the mentoring you've received, and the wounds that you've suffered? And that is a complicated, difficult, painful, hurtful process. And if we just go, well, they'll figure it out, man. They'll figure it out because 3% of the population, will, their feelings will be hurt drastically. If we talk about this, it's not a functional way of proceeding. But listen, Christianity is rooted in paradox. It's one God and three persons. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. You are predestined from the foundation of the world and fully morally responsible for every action of your life. Right? G.K. Chesterton once said that um, all of Christian faith is rooted in five basic paradoxes. And if you believe those paradoxes that you can't fully explain, everything built on it makes sense. They're not contradictions. They're just paradoxes. He said, but— if you try to build a world based on only the things you can absolutely axiomatically know, you will build on, on it something fully rational, and you will be insane. You believe in only what you can absolutely verify, and the circle of what you believe in will be a tiny little circle. And the truth is, is that all views are circular. Chesterton said in the book Orthodoxy, I think it's in the chapter of the Maniac, he says, you're all going to believe in a circle. You either believe in a little circle, in which you go round and around and go crazy, or you believe in a big circle as big as the universe. Those are your options. And so you and I have to recognize that there has to be a normativity that if you, if you don't look exactly like it, it's fine. It's fine. But human beings need something to aim for. That they very well by, why, be why the Lord gave us Jesus the Christ. He gave us a human being to aim for. Whatever you do or don't understand about didactic theology, you can still go to the Bible and read about the man, this person, who fully embodies first, before anything else, perfect humanity, which applies equally to men and women. And in his masculinity, he displays both powerful masculinity and also like beautiful embodiments of things we normally conceptualize as feminine characteristics. The ability to, to cry, but also the ability to cry and be angry at the same time. I, I, I don't do that very often, but my wife can do it. <laughs> right? But here's one, of the, here's one of the beauties of our cultural moment. Like, it's not all bad. It's not all bad. And Adam's right. You can't go back. You have to go forward. And Lori's right. For a lot of us, we're going to have to lament our way forward. But it's not always bad to have the foundations turn out from under you. Right? You may live in a house that you didn't build, and you don't know how to build a house. 
And sometimes it's good for somebody to blow your house up so that you have to learn how to build a house. Because for a long time, Christians in America lived by a bunch of rules and a bunch of assumptions that they didn't know why we did them. They didn't know how they were constructed. They didn't know. And so now these things happen, like the foundations are shaken. Things are disestablished. And like, we can't tell people why not to have sex before marriage. We can't explain why monogamy is sacred. We can't explain how sex is a rehearsal of the covenant and how that's related to being the bride of Christ. And like, we can't do any of that. We don't know how to wire. We don't know how to frame. We don't know how to pound in nails without breaking our fingers theologically. Maybe it's good. Maybe the Lord is bringing forward revival. Maybe he's going to stir something that's incredible in this land. Maybe it's not over here for the gospel. Maybe God is stripping us back down to the foundations and say, you need to learn what a human being is and what the gospel is from the ground up, from the very bottom, so that you can actually describe it to a world who knows nothing about it anymore. And as their experience of the world becomes more and more depressing, more and more harmful, more and more painful, and the more they realize it doesn't work and there's no happy ending to this story, you may become a sufficiently good storyteller of the true story that they could turn to it. And we could learn the story well enough, truthfully enough, deeply enough, that we might actually obey it. And that it would produce the blessing by fertilizing the regenerate work in our souls so that our lives are sufficiently fruitful so that the flourishing we experience could really go out to people all over the place. At, at High Point, people hear this from me all the time, but I'll, I'll end with this. People really do think that love should be easy. It's one of the craziest ideas in our culture. And young people think that. Young people think love should be easy. They're like, can we just love each other? Like, we can end wars this way. Just stick flowers in the end of gun barrels. You know, like, just love each other, right? And love is easy for God because he's the strongest being in the universe. Because he's strong enough to speak one word and create a universe, love is easy for him. Love is easy for the truly strong. But we are people of Ecclesiastes. Vapor, vapor, everything's vapor. We're not solid enough creatures to love. If you think I'm making that up or just taking it from Lewis and the Great Divorce because he's the evangelical pope? <laughs> That's what the next verses in Second Peter say. Therefore, because of the greatness of the one whose promises we've received, make every effort. That is, work as hard as you can. Okay? That's another paradox. You're saved entirely, 100%, completely by grace, and you're going to work as hard as you possibly can. Right? Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And then to self-control, perseverance. And then to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, finally, love. Because if you produce these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? It's only when we become strong in the Spirit can we fully inhabit our humanity, fully inhabit our, inhabit our, our sexuality, fully inhabit our neighborliness, 
fully inhabit every role and rhythm and responsibility in our lives so that we'll no longer be people of vapor, but we will be what Isaiah promises, the people of God would be oaks of righteousness and able to show, not just say, what it looks like to inhabit a human sexuality. And then when people wonder, to be able to describe it. But that can only happen if we will recognize and be open to the fact that sexuality is one of the most potent, consequential things about us. It only happens if we're not captured by worldliness and by the secular religions that seek to replace the gospel and flip it upside down. And if we will give ourselves fully to become substantial, truthfully, fully godly people in everything that we do, we can get there from here. His divine power has given us everything we need. And he's given us each other too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for everybody who's come here this weekend. And I know that everybody sacrifices time to be in this place. And I know a lot of people came with pain. And a lot of people came wondering what they'd hear. And a lot of people came wondering who they'd meet and whether or not they'd find healing or find clarity. And I pray that you would, you would drive in our souls whatever message it was that was most needful for us. And maybe it was very broad. But I pray that you would work in our hearts to take you at your word and to respond to you the way we can. Whether in faith, repentance and faith. There may be some couples in here that need to repent of what they're doing and trust you in faith and be able to reconstruct the relationship differently. Some married couples. Some people who are having affairs or are on their way to them. Some people who need to lament great pains that they've suffered. Some people who are confused just because they don't know much about what you've revealed. And I pray you'd lift up in their hearts a fire for your word. I pray, Father, that you would begin to create relationships between people who can nourish each other's faith and can help each other. I pray for people who feel isolated, especially people who feel part of these sexual minorities, that they would find meaningful relationships with people who care about them and really want to relate with them. I pray that you'd help them feel loved and listened to. And I pray that they would find deep hope in what you can do in their lives. And I pray, God, that you would help us in this city to be a witness by being people who worship and rejoice in you and who we're meant to be. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, do the most difficult of all things in dying to ourselves to let you tell us who we are. We pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip. Thank you.